invite you to stand together, if you will, as we share in the reading of God's Word. We're reading this morning from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read together. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and favored are those who listen to it being read. And keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we begin a new series entitled The End. We're going to be spending four weeks reflecting on the book of Revelation and end times. Now, I have to be honest. For most of my 38 years of ministry, I have had little interest in knowing about, reading about, and especially preaching about end times. Anytime somebody would ask me about what I thought about the second coming of Jesus, I always had my pat answer. I said something like this. Well, I'm too excited about Jesus' first coming to be concerned about his second coming. And it was my way of kind of putting them off and letting them know that the subject matter was not really something that I really cared that much about. That means that nobody was more surprised than me this past January when In my time of study and prayer and reflection for preaching for the year, I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to preach on end times. And I set the calendar and decided that on September the 13th, that's when the series would start. Now, I've never done this before. I've never preached on this topic. And so I need you to be patient with me. I'm new at this. It's only in the last few weeks that I've really been reading and studying. But I've come to discover that for 38 years, I've been wrong. I've been wrong to dismiss or to not give this body of Scripture the importance that it's worth and that it merits. These are important matters. Do you realize that one-third of the entire Bible is prophecy? And I've discovered that when it comes to end times and all that that's about, it's not just Revelation that talks about this. Jesus and the New Testament writers all throughout the New Testament talk over and over and over about the end times. And so it really makes no sense whatsoever to ignore it or to dismiss it. So that's what we're going to attempt to do over the next four Sundays. Now, we've got a lot to cover, so before we can have a conversation about end times, I think the first thing we have to establish is that there will be one. There's going to be a day of God's final judgment in which, according to Scripture, the world as we know it is going to cease. And God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be the place that we live forever. 
That's the story of the Bible. You know, the Bible begins with Genesis, talks about creation. And then the Bible goes on to tell us about God's covenant with Israel and how Israel was going to be God's people and that they were going to be a light to the world and they would reveal God's will to the world. And we, we see in, in Scripture, the Old Testament, God's, uh, Israel's pattern of rebellion against God, God's forgiveness and God's deliverance, Israel's rejection and rebellion, God's forgiveness and deliverance. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and the Gospels give us an account of his life. And in Jesus' life and death and, and, and resurrection, we see God's nature firsthand. But the Bible doesn't end with the Gospels. It ends with the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, we get a glimpse of what God's plans are to do something radically new and different and even better in the days to come. Now, this is not bad news. A lot of times people, when, we, when you, they think that we're going to be talking about revelation and end times, it, it's going to be a lot of gloom and doom, bad news. Well, there's going to be some gloom and doom, and we're going to focus on that next week when we talk about the tribulation. But this is not bad news, this is good news. It's good news. If you love God, if Christ is a part of your life and you've given your life to Christ, there's not a thing in the world any of us have to fear. It's going to be an amazing event and experience. Matter of fact, I have a motto that I'd like for us to all embrace as we go through this time together. Regardless of what we hear and regardless of what we're going to learn, I'd ask that we approach it this way. Don't be scared, be prepared. Don't be scared, be prepared. And those of you who are prepared, you don't have a thing in the world to worry about, and we can actually welcome these events when they come, whether they're next week or whether they're 10,000 years from now. Now, even though a lot of what we're going to be doing is focusing on Revelation, so much of end times prophecy, really you have to go back to the Old Testament book of Daniel because there the, the seeds are planted that give insight into some of the things that Revelation is going to talk about. Now, I've provided for you uh, in your outline, on the back of your outline, a graphic. I'd like for you to take that in your hand, if you will. And I'm going to try to explain this. The book of Daniel is a prophetic book in the Bible. And an important part of the book, chapter 2, is a dream that... King Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. He has gone in, he's plundered Jerusalem, leveled it to the ground, taken the Hebrew people bondage, their slaves back in his empire in Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision. He has this dream. And he's troubled by it, and he doesn't understand it. And he calls his sages to interpret his dream. And this is so important to him that he threatens to kill any sage that misinterprets the dream. Well, you can imagine not too many of them were willing to even make a try. And so there's a man of the Hebrew faith, he's named Daniel. And he's a leader among the Hebrew people there in bondage in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar calls on Daniel to interpret the dream. But not only does he ask him to interpret the dream, just to make sure that Daniel doesn't make something up, 
He says, Daniel, you tell me what my dream is, and then you interpret it for me. Without me telling you, you tell me what it is. Well, Daniel's a little, a little anxious about this. I mean, if he, misses, if he messes this up, he's going to die. So he goes to God in prayer, and in, in prayer, God reveals to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. And so he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream. In your dream, you saw a huge, tall statue of a man. The statue had a head of gold. The chest and arms were made of silver. The belly and the thighs were made of bronze. The legs were made of iron. The feet were made of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar, at the bottom of the statue, you saw a rock that at first was very small, but then it began to grow and grow and grow, and it crushed the statue. Now, Daniel said, all right, that's your dream. Here's the interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. And your empire is Babylon. But there is going to come a day where your empire is going to cease. There's going to come an army against you, the Persian army, and they're going to take over you. And that's represented in the chest and arms of silver, the Persian empire. And then the Persian empire is going to be in existence for a while, but it's going to be overcome by, by Greece. Greece is going to come. And Alexander, as we know, hundreds of years later, Alexander comes to Greece, conquers the Persian Empire, and we have the Greek Empire. The legs of iron, that's the Roman Empire. Rome will take over Greece. And they're known as the legs of iron. And think back about, uh, about Rome, the Roman Empire, and how iron played so prominently in their lives, their, their swords, their, their chariots, their, their armor. And then the Roman Empire is going to exist for a while. Then the feet and of iron and clay, that's, that's going to be another kingdom. We're not quite sure what that is. Maybe a restored Roman Empire or divided kingdoms. We're not quite sure. And then that rock, that rock represents the Messiah who's going to come in final victory, and his kingdom's going to spread, and he's going to crush all these other kingdoms. Well... That's exactly what happened. Hundreds of years after his prophecy, the Persian Empire takes over Babylon. The Babylonian Empire, just to give you some dates, 605 to 539 B.C. In 539, the Persian Empire, what we know today as Iran, conquers the Babylonian Empire from 539 to 311 B.C. Sure enough, Greece later in 311 conquers the Persian Empire and exists until 165 B.C. The Roman Empire begins in 168 B.C. as they conquer Greece, and it exists until 476 A.D. It's important to understand all of these images and prophecies leading up to Revelation because Every one of these things happened in progression just as Daniel prophesied to the king of Babylon. We are at the feet and the toes 
the last period before the crushing rock, which is Jesus Christ, his final return in victory. We don't know when the end times will come, but we're a whole lot closer than we've ever been before. Now, let me say something about the books of Revelation and Daniel uh, that's important for us to keep in mind. They are what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is different from any other literature in the Bible. It means uncovering, revealing. And so what apocalyptic literature does, in sometimes pretty bizarre fashion, outlines God's plan for the future. And sometimes it's hard to understand. It it makes reference to all kind of... uh, Imagery and visions and creatures that are hard to, to explain or comprehend. It doesn't seem to flow in logical fashion. Sometimes apocalyptic literature just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. One Bible scholar describes it this way. Apocalyptic literature is continually attempting to describe the undescribable, to say the unsayable, and paint the unpaintable. But keep in mind, this is literature that's trying to describe visions and dreams. Visions and dreams aren't always that logical and common sense. I mean, think about your dreams. Do they make a whole lot of sense from time? If you wrote down the dreams that you had the night before, they probably would be really bizarre and strange and not really flow. And that's kind of what we're dealing with with here. Now, Revelation, if you spend any time reading it, you know that it can be difficult and confusing and complicated. So let me just, I want to real quickly just give three overarching things we need to know about this book to simplify its reading. And the first is this. It's not meant to be chronological or sequential. It's not written in a fashion that you start here as point A, then B, then C, and it moves in a logical progression. No, it's more of a collage, if you will, of images and and uh, pictures and, and words that together form a message. And the underlying message of Revelation is this. Its purpose is to reveal the greatness of Jesus and how awesome Jesus is. You know, when we think about Jesus, we think about the baby in the, in the, in the cradle in Bethlehem. We think about the suffering Messiah on the cross giving his life for us. And he is that, but he's so much more. I just want to share briefly a portion of how, of how the Revelation describes Jesus. At this point, John, in the Revelation, sees the, the scroll that contains insights into the unfolding of God's plan. And he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Look, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, a reference to Jesus. The root of David, a reference to Jesus, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in between the throne and the four living creatures, there's some of that bizarre language, and among the elders I saw a lamb. Jesus, standing as if he had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent God's seven spirits, sent out into the whole world. He came forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated 
on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each held a harp and gold bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They took up a, a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will rule on earth. Then I looked up, and I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures, the elders. They numbered in the millions, thousands upon thousands. They said in one loud voice, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he goes on and on just to give us this grandiose, uncommon, beyond average description of the glory and the majesty of Jesus. And that's really, that's the first thing that that revelation exists to do. And the second thing is this. It invites us to choose the right kingdom. It lays out the fact that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And as you live your life, you need to decide and choose which kingdom you're going to choose. And thirdly, Revelation exists to vindicate and validate Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And to point out the fact that Jesus wins. Now the big picture of Revelation contains four things that we're going to look at one each Sunday. It refers to the rapture. It refers to something that will follow the rapture called the seven years of the tribulation and the Antichrist. It then talks about the second coming of Christ where Christ will establish his reign in a thousand-year millennial rule. And then it talks about the ultimate crescendo of the end as God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So with that background of prophecy and revelation, let's think this morning about the rapture. What is it? The rapture is is that event, Scripture tells us, in which the dead in Christ will be resurrected and that Christians living at that time will instantly be transformed into their resurrection bodies, and both groups will be caught up, that's what the word rapture means, caught up to meet Christ in the air and will be taken to heaven. Now this is referred to not just in Revelation, but all through the New Testament. Listen again to John 14 that we've heard time and time at funerals. John 14, 1-3 says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me. That's what's going to happen at the rapture. Christ comes to take us to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Listen, I'm telling you a secret. All of us won't die, but we will be able, but we will be changed in an instant in the blink of an eye, in the final judgment. 
The trumpet will blast and the dead will be raised with bodies that won't decay and we will be changed. Again, Paul writing in 1 Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what we are saying is a message from the Lord. We who are alive and still around at the Lord's coming definitely won't go ahead of those who have died. This is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout of the head angel and a blast of God's trumpet. First, those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. That, may, that way we will always be with the Lord, so encourage one another. Now, I realize, trust me, I realize this is bizarre stuff. This is bizarre language. Some of us may not even believe this. But there's too many references in God's Word to simply dismiss it. Now, all of these passages and many, many others affirm two things about what's going to happen at the rapture. First, the dead in Christ will be resurrected. That means if you have a loved one and they've died and they are buried, at that day, the grave will not be able to hold them. God's going to bring their, take their mortal body, give them a resurrection body, and they will be united with Christ in the air, not just their spirit will be resurrected, their body will be re- resurrected. Now, you may say, I don't know if I can buy that, Stuart. Well, you know what? You've been affirming that every Sunday that you come in here to worship when you recite the Apostles' Creed. Matter of fact, I want you to look at your hymnal right now. Take it out. Look at number 881, the Apostles' Creed. I need you to take a look for that that for just a moment. In the Apostles' Creed, we're affirming the things that we believe. And we get to that point in that last paragraph where we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, whose body are you talking about there? That is not a reference to the resurrected body of Jesus. We've already done that up here where we say on the third day he rose from the dead. When we affirm here that we believe in the resurrection of the body, we're talking about our body. We're talking about the body of anybody who's ever died or ever will live and die. That body is going to be resurrected. According to Jesus, he's coming back to take us to the place where he has provided. And that day, Christians who have died are going to be resurrected. Now, I can't explain that in a way that is going to make any sense. And I know just the thought of that is, is beyond our capacity to grasp. But let me share this, and this is a, this is a far stretch from being a, even a remotely a, an adequate metaphor or analogy, but let me try. Several months ago, I was having trouble with my television set. It just wasn't functioning right. It stopped working, and I, wouldn't, I couldn't download or couldn't access you know, movies and whatnot, and uh, so I, I finally just got really frustrated, and so I called the cable company at the time, 
And I got somebody on the phone, and I explained my problem to them, and they said, well, hold on just a minute. So they put me on hold, come back, and I'm talking to this person in the Philippines. Okay? In the Philippines. And I explained my problem to him, and he says, all right, Mr. Green, just a second. I think I can fix your problem, but before I do that, I need you to be a little patient because I need to come I need to... I need to shut down your cable box. I need to make some adjustments on your TV. And uh, it'll probably take me about five or ten minutes, but that should fix the problem. So I just sit back. And my cable box goes off. And it comes back on. And the TV goes off and it comes back on. And after about 30 minutes, the problem is solved. And listen, I'm not a smart person. But... If somebody in the Philippines can reach into my living room and fix my cable box, why should I be the least bit weary or leery or not believe that God has the capacity, if God wants to, to resurrect bodies that are dead and have been dead for centuries? He gives us a resurrected body. I can't explain that, but it's... God's Word, and it's something to look forward to. So that's the first thing that happens at the rapture. The second thing that happens is that those of us who are alive are going to be transformed instantly into our resurrected bodies, and we're going to be called up to meet Christ in the air, and we're going to reside in heaven. Jesus describes it this way. On that day, those on the roof whose possessions are in the house shouldn't come down to grab them. Likewise, those in the field shouldn't turn back. I tell you, on that night, two will be in the same bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. We don't have to believe in the rapture. Many Christians don't. But I think we dismiss it at our own peril because can we really dismiss something that is referred to over and over and over? Now, the rapture, the other thing we need to know about the rapture is that it, it is imminent. It could happen at any moment. You see, with the rapture, there are no preconditions that have to happen. Now, that's important to in distinction. See, the rapture, is not the same as the second coming of Christ, which will happen after what the Bible calls the tribulation. Now, with the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, Revelation lays out very specifically signs that are supposed to happen that will be kind of warning signs that the time is near. We'll look at some of those next week. But with the rapture, there are no pre conditions. The rapture happens before that tribulation and the second coming of Christ. It could be tonight. It could be a thousand years from now. What we do know, according to Scripture, is that it will be followed by seven years of tribulation, and that is going to be a horrible time for those who remain, which will precede Christ's ultimate return. Christ coming back for his church is the rapture. Christ coming back with his church in final victory 
It's the new heaven and the new earth, the millennial kingdom that God will be establishing. Well, like I said, a lot of people have a lot, lots of various thoughts about all of this. I think the most important thing to know about the rapture is this. Those whose lives are devoted to Christ have nothing to fear. We will be transformed from this body and this life into heaven itself, and it's going to be glorious. Those whose lives are not given to Christ, according to God's word, will remain and will live through and endure the seven years of the tribulation, during which time the Antichrist will rule. Some will come to faith during those seven years. Others still will refuse to do so. It is incumbent upon us, whether we understand it all or not, to be ready. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot in the first Iraq war. While he was flying his 300th mission, he received an unexpected and very great phone call message on his radio that he was given permission to pull his crew back together, turn the plane around, and fly home. So they flew hours across the ocean back to the United States landed in Massachusetts at one of the Air Force bases there. They got in the car and drove all night to western Pennsylvania to their home. And when his buddies dropped Robbie Robbins off at his driveway a little before sunrise in the morning, He was surprised to see over his garage a huge banner that said, Welcome home, Daddy. And he thought to himself, Well, how did they know? Nobody had made any phone calls. The crew itself had not expected to return so so early. And he says, When I walked into the house, the kids were half-dressed for school, and they screamed, Daddy! And my wife, Susan, came running down the hall, She was beautiful. Her hair was fixed perfectly. She had her makeup on, a gorgeous yellow dress. And I said to her, Honey, how did you know that I was coming back? She said, I didn't. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew that you would try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. Wise words for Christ followers. Even more wise words for those who aren't yet Christ followers. Be ready every day. 
for Christ to come in his church. I don't want to be too melodramatic or emotional right now, but I would be um, in grave error, malpractice as a pastor. If I preached this part of God's word and then didn't give a word of, of warning and challenge to anybody, we said this could be tonight. It could be a thousand years from now. But be ready. If you even remotely wonder if your life and heart is given to Christ, if you have any doubt as to whether or not you've chosen the right kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness, then as we sing this closing hymn, either come to this altar and and solidify that decision once and for all or make it where you're standing or whatever, but don't let another Sunday come and go without you being prepared and ready for his coming whenever that might be.